It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Monet, Carvaggio, Kandinsky. All these names paint a picture in your mind of their most famous pieces. But do you know their works well enough to spot the difference between a real and a fake? Traditional views on art were turned upside down in 1960s New York as new artists and creators rebelled against styles and forms taught to them in prominent schools and institutions. However, one newcomer to the art scene with a less conventional backstory would find that his talents stemmed not from rejecting the styles of the titans before him, but instead from embracing them. Ken Perini isn't your average artist or your average criminal. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. The name Ken Perini isn't one you'll see when visiting a museum or paging through a textbook, but his art has decorated the walls of numerous art galleries and collections. As a teenager, Ken entered into New York's art scene thanks to special connections who invited him to some of the city's most prestigious galleries. There, Ken stood alongside artists and celebrities alike, soaking in the talent of the masters before him. Visitors left the galleries with a sense of respect and appreciation for the pieces they observed, but Perini left with an idea. Wanting to try his hand at the techniques and styles of these celebrated artists, Ken brought brush to canvas and discovered he had a hidden talent for painting. His works were brilliant. Too much so, perhaps. Ken was able to recreate famous artists' works with such remarkable attention to detail and skill that even art experts weren't able to identify a Perini piece from an original. In his book, Caveat Emptor, The Secret Life of an American Art Forger, Ken Perini details his prolific international career within the art underworld. Today, Ken joins me to discuss just how he mastered the art of forgery, and how he was able to trick the experts that ruled the art world he infiltrated. Welcome to the Fox True Crime Podcast. And, you know, one of one of the things that struck me um, about your your comments about it was, you know, you said I'm now that you no longer do that uh, or you, you sell your paintings as real faux forgeries. You say, I miss the addictive thrill of fooling the experts. You said it was great sport for me. So without further ado, tell us the story of the greatest sport there ever was. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you for that introduction. I appreciate it. (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, I was young, a lot younger, and uh, uh, it was thrilling for me to be able to have the ability to paint pictures that appeared to be period, uh, perhaps 100, 200 years old or more, and uh, watch them being sold in some of the uh, most ex- exclusive venues in the world. And uh, I, it, it was addictive. It was a thrill. I, I, I uh, often say some people, uh, 
it's it could be the gambling casino or Wall Street or the racetrack. And for me, it was the auction house. I liked fooling the experts and uh, uh, and um, and collecting the money. <laughs> and tell us about you grew up across the pond right from here. Uh, tell us about those early years and how did you stumble upon the realization that you were an incredible art forger? Well, uh, to make, make that long story short, uh, I grew up in Palisades Park, New Jersey. Uh, it adjoins Fort Lee, New Jersey, which is the gateway to Manhattan, right over the George Washington Bridge. And uh, uh, the, the year that I um, was uh, introduced to art was 1967. I was 17 years old. Uh, I, uh, in, I hung around Fort Lee a lot. And there was an old estate in Fort Lee, uh, a crumbling old mansion right on the edge of the Palisade Cliffs, spectacular location that was overlooking the Hudson River in Manhattan. And an artist from New York City came uh, out there and leased the house. It was in disrepair. Uh, He fixed it up somewhat. He leased it. He came out there with a buddy of his, uh, Tony Masaccio. I'm sorry, the artist's name was Tom Daly. And he came out to the studio with a kind of an assistant by the name of Tony, Tony Masaccio, and their girlfriends. Uh, They were from New York City. They were in the art world. uh, And I just had a chance meeting with them one day and started hanging out with them. I was invited to the castle. (laughs) I was 17 years old. I met all these interesting people from New York City in a part of a world I had no understanding of, but it was thrilling for me to meet people like this. I started tagging along with them to uh, uh, gallery openings that they went to, uh, artist studios, um, uh, all kinds of places in the art world, and museums. And different receptions, and it was all exciting. Oh, and and I went, uh, I I started going to to an art bar downtown called Max's Kansas City. This was a big hangout for uh, uh, people in the art world. Andy Warhol hung out there. A lot of rock stars would turn uh, turn up there. And a lot of what they called at that time the beautiful people, uh, models and rich young people from Europe flew in and hung out at this place. It was it was quite a uh, <laughs> quite a scene there. So at seventeen, I'm going to these uh, going to all these uh, interesting places with these people. It was pretty thrilling for me. But it was when we went to the museums and I started looking at the paintings there that uh, it started awakening something inside of me that, frankly, I didn't uh, realize uh, that I had. And that was, uh, it started awakening an aesthetic appreciation of art. I looked at the paintings, didn't know what they were about, who painted them aware. My friends that I was with, Tom, Tony, their girlfriend, they would tell me this is by, uh, you know, uh, Titian or Raphael or something like that. And uh, I would think about that, uh, and it stuck in me. And then I would want to go back to the museums on my own and look at those paintings. And I, I just got very interested in them. And uh, I started appreciating the artists. I bought books about the artists, and I self-educated myself. But I felt a compulsion uh, inside of me to want to try my hand at painting. 
uh, I think it was because I looked closely at the paintings and I was fascinated by the ingenious way the artist used paint to create three-dimensional illusions and effects uh, on a two-dimensional plane. And I found that very um, uh, fascinating, how they could uh, do this. And I just thought that if I had paints and brushes, <laughs> I could do it too, maybe. <laughs> so my uh, friends at the castle, Tom Daly, the artist, uh, we were good friends. Uh, I used to hang out there all the time. We would look at art books, we would uh, uh, smoke a joint, uh, <laughs> have a lot of fun. And uh, he set me up with paints, brushes, and I discovered that I had uh, uh, a uh, real hidden talent for painting. I amazed my friends there with my first tries at painting. But how I got into art forgery, that was not right. Uh, Tom looked at my paintings. I made copies of old masters. He gave me assignments. He said, like, paint this head of Christ by Rembrandt. And I would bring it back a week later, and, I, and he would be very uh, impressed with what I was able to do. So uh, being a teenager, I always needed money. I wanted to go out. Uh, I had sports cars that were breaking down all the time. I needed money. I wanted to take girlfriends out. So <laughs> my friend Tom who was 10 years older than me, by the way. Tom and Tony were like both a decade older than me. So I was the kid hanging out at this place. So Tom, as a joke one day, said, you know, you paint like the old masters. Uh, why don't you look at what this guy did? He gives me a book on this art forger from the 40s, a guy by the name of Van Meegren. And he started making all these fake paintings, these Dutch paintings, and he's selling them all over Europe. <laughs> so I thought, why not? You know? <laughs> and I tried my hand. I followed... Uh, a lot of the secrets he gave away in this book on how he made things look old and how he cracked them and everything like that. So I made some fakes, and um, I actually sold one to a gallery on 57th Street uh, to an experienced expert that ran this gallery. Uh, he, he dealt in old masters and decorative arts from the uh, 17th, 16th and 17th and 18th centuries. He was a seasoned expert, and he bought the painting. He thought it was original, and I walked out of the gallery with 800 bucks cash in my pocket for a little Dutch uh, portrait that I had done, uh, and, um, and that was it. That was the beginning of it. Uh, and then, I mean, not to go on in too long of a story, but uh, once I did it once, uh, I guess it was one of those things, you can, once is never enough. You're going to do it again. Get away with it once, you have to do it again. I wanted to live in New York City, and I uh, I wanted to be a regular artist, a contemporary artist. Uh, and I, uh, I got my first studio on Fifth Avenue, number 43 Fifth Avenue, the Stanford White Building on 5th and 11th. Street and it was at in those days it was it's a historic building today I mean it's, it's one of the most elite uh, pieces of property downtown uh, but in those days it was a uh, it was a historic slum really uh, nothing worked good in it all the systems were broken down and, everything. and I, I had a studio in there a charming studio with a terrace uh, for a hundred and ten dollars a month. I was living there, and I was painting little fakes, more Dutch paintings. I was selling them around the city. But I really wanted to be a contemporary artist. 
uh, and be part of the uh, abstract impressionist movement uh, that was taking place in, in, in downtown at that time. Because I was hanging out in Soho, uh, I was meeting artists, I was going to Max's and so on. So my old friend from the castle, Tony, Tony Masaccio, uh, he got a loft on uh, <laughs> Union Square, right? Just off Union Square. And so I needed space for this collection that I envisioned, this uh, abstract uh, uh, collection that I envisioned. And I moved into this loft and uh, I started working on this, this collection. I was getting a lot of attention. Andy Warhol was just around the corner. Uh, I had Robert Hughes, the art critic, interested in what I was doing. I was really attracting attention, and I, I could have had a good shot. And uh, But one thing led to another. Uh, we tried to, ins- I mean, it's a long story. I write about it in my book, but we, we tried to fix up this this dungeon we were living in, this, this raw space, this loss. We tried to put a bathtub in. We did a botched-up uh, plumbing job. And we flooded the floor. The ceiling caved in on the restaurant down below. And I found myself thrown out in the middle of the winter uh, in New York City. Uh, and, and the landlord, who was the restaurant down below, they didn't go through the judicial process to evict us. They came up with steel ladles. And they said, you get out or else. Okay, so it was that kind of a picture. Okay, that's the way they did it in the old days. But they, they didn't bother to go to the courts. So uh, long story short, I, went, I, I was uh, walking around New York City. I was evicted. I had half my collection done in this loft. I didn't know what it was. I wound up on the Upper East Side at number 35 East 68th Street in a, uh, an old townhouse. I rented a place there. And, uh, but to live on the Upper East Side, you have to have money. It's an expensive place. And I fell back on my forgery. And um, I uh, uh, expanded into Dutch paintings in the style of Van Goyen, Van Roysdale, and I would get anywhere from about uh, anywhere from about uh, five hundred to twelve hundred dollars per painting in those days. But that was a good shot of cash because my rent was only uh, uh, about three hundred dollars a month, and so I was uh, I was living pretty good and getting along. And I still had hopes of putting my abstract collection together, but uh, one thing led to another, and forgery became a career for me, and that was the beginning of it all. And uh, I eventually hooked up again with my friend Tony, and he became my salesman, and uh, and uh, I, we were in business. And as the years went on, the paintings got more important, the money got more important, until eventually I was selling them in Sotheby's and Christie's. And eventually I was selling them in uh, London and New York simultaneously. I had I had paintings out in all the major auction houses, and the money was pouring in. And uh, that's the way I, I, I lived for 30 years. We'll be right back with more of this story. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. 
And what struck me about your beginnings, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area, California, and your descriptions of the castle and the avant-garde art scene reminded me of Telegraph Avenue. And, you know, we would do that as kids and sort of the adoring, sit on the fringes, looking up to, you know, the kids that were five, 10 years older, how impressionable we were, how instructive they were. And your story, you know, it's, it's sort of like the East Coast, Henry Miller, Kerouac, you know, art scene, essentially, where there was a vibrance and a commitment to ideology. And that really shone through in your descriptions of the castle and the crew that you ran with that it was really about, um, it really was about the art. It was about the art. And there was a, 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 a very powerful cultural component involved in that, because that was the dropout turn on era. That was the hippie era. And it was like, uh, Many young people like me uh, didn't really bother in being career oriented. We had we were taken over by this crazy philosophy that we're going to have a cultural revolution and live in some kind of crazy utopian paradise. It was really um, it was bizarre, but it was a very powerful uh, philosophy and. It was fun at the time, as long as you were young and you were with other young people. It was the hippie movement, is what it was called. It was a, it was a great time. It was a great time to have fun, be young, and yeah, I was I was uh, I met these people that were a lot more sophisticated than well than I was, of course. But to have entree into the art world and then to go to this place like Max's and see. Famous people down there. Uh, this was this was really uh, this made a big impression on me. But at the same time, I never really thought of what I was going to do in the future to make anything of myself. So thankfully, I found this hidden gift, and I just and I art in in a sense saved my life, and I made a career out of it. Uh, and uh, and I'd have to say, uh, it was exciting for me. I liked the money. I liked getting away with something. I loved sitting in the audience of an auction house uh, with the bidders and seeing a painting that I painted maybe six months earlier up there on the stage and watching the bid soar on it. it it's an adrenaline rush, and it's addictive. And you describe that life that you had as total freedom. And if you would, could you describe now how long it took you to create a forgery at the height of of this career? And then what you did is you describe in the book how you did make it appear old and then walk us through the actual bringing to the auction houses and, you know, tell us, share about all that. Well, uh, a high class fake is a very complex construction. Uh, I chose to create paintings that uh, that were supposedly or masqueraded as paintings that were created hundreds of years ago by uh, artists of that period, some very famous and some not so famous. But so to create something like that, it's it's a real challenge. Everything has to be correct to make a painting like that. Uh, And it's going to be examined by experts. Like when you present the painting in an auction house, it's it's examined by an expert, a seasoned expert. 
and they're going to look at the painting, the front of the painting, the back of the painting, and everything they're viewing in that painting, the front, the back, the sides, is telling a story to that expert. It's what I call forensic, uh, visual forensics, uh, the kind of canvas and the aging, the oxidation of the canvas when they turn it around. The back of the painting is one of the first things they look at, and that is a um, that tells the whole history of of the uh, of the painting. Now, to be a great forger, a successful forger, forger, you have to be as smart as the experts are, and I would say a bit smarter. Uh, you have to know what they're looking for, even though they don't let this out when they, when you present them a painting. You, I could follow their eyes, and I always felt that I could read their mind when they looked at the edge of the painting or the back of the painting. Uh, it all has to be uh, historically correct in every way. I always presented the painting. And I asked them for their opinion on it. I didn't bring a painting and say, oh, this was by J.F. Herring, and, and, and uh, I'd like to know about it. I, I, I presented the painting. I may have said it's been in my family, but what is it? And I like to, <laughs> I like to let them educate me. <laughs> I guess you could say I took a perverse pleasure in this. But also it was a... It was a um, it was feedback on my ability because if the, if the guy is telling me the age of the painting and when the artist painted it and what series uh, this came from in the artist's uh, evolution of work, it told me that my thinking was correct in the creation of this artwork. And then the, uh, the, the final, uh, uh, well, the next step in the process was that he would ask, the auction house official would ask me if I chose to put it in a sale, and I would say, sure, yeah, I'd like that. And then they'd write up a contract. I'd be out doing the contract, and the next step is uh, it would be scheduled for a sale in the future. And if I was in town, whether it was New York or London, I, uh, I would attend the sales and, uh, and have some fun and then go out for dinner afterwards. But uh, for me, the life that I had, yes, it gave me freedom. And, uh, and that was very, uh, important to me. I had the money and the freedom to go where I wanted, uh, uh, without any restrictions. When, if I was in London and I, uh, was with a friend, go over to, uh, Ireland, stay at some of these old castle hotels, rent a car, stay a month, two, explore Ireland, then go over to Amsterdam, do things like that. It was just a total life of freedom, and I never knew what it was to work for anybody else uh, or anything uh, like that. I was my own boss. But I always say this, to make a great fake, you have to have a great love and an aesthetic appreciation for the artist that, that one is going to emulate. And I uh, would say that if you're just faking an, a, a painting just for the sake of making money on it, there's going, to, there's going to be, it's going to ring hollow. It may fool some people, but it will not stand the test of time. Uh, I, I um, am pleased to see that 
every so often I see one of my paintings that I may have painted 25, 30 years ago still showing up in a sales room or in a collection or in some magazine. And that tells me that it stood the test of time. It stood up to scrutiny through the years. And that's because I put in uh, into that painting the inspiration and the love of the work of the artist that I was emulating. And for me, that was very important because I, I have to state this. I am above all I became in my life, thanks to those early days at the castle uh, and Tom and Tony, I became a great art lover in my own right and a connoisseur. I have a great deep appreciation of a very fine painting and I understand what goes in to make a painting a great work of art, inspirational, depth, uh, beautiful workmanship, atmosphere. And when I created a fake, I put a great deal of research into the project. I looked upon it as a project. Uh, even though once I had all my research in place and, and uh, I could paint pictures very quickly, but I would start by reading about the life and times of the artist. I wanted to know the social and political situation of his life. I wanted to um, get all the examples that I could possibly find on his work. And I made what I called visual float shots of the artist's work. I would get big pieces of uh, um, uh, six by eight pieces of uh, foam board. I would cut out all the examples of the artist and put them in chronological order on, uh, on the, um, uh, the piece of foam board so that I could see the evolution of the artist's work, the progression of his work. And then I can invent something that would fit into a series of paintings at the art, or a period that the artist was creating. And above all, a great fake has to be logical. It has to fit into uh, a, uh, a, a, an evolutionary line of the artist's work so that when an expert looks at that painting, he could place it. He could say, ah, yes, this looks like it could be done by uh, uh, J.F. Herring or Martin Johnson Heed probably around uh, 1876 or something like that in this particular series. So by making a visual flowchart and doing a lot of research, I could make a, a fake that would have all the necessary uh, uh, artistic and technical attributes built into that painting so that the expert could look at it and give it his seal of approval. And also it had to have the art artistic uh, quality that has to uh, equal the artist that I was emulating. And I prided myself on that. I, I didn't make second, second rate examples of the artists that I emulated. I, I uh, strived to make examples that were when they were at their peak of creativity. And to that end, you've said, you know, before you mentioned J.F. Herring and you said, I don't wish to flatter myself, but I'm sure Herring himself would be proud to put his name on this painting. And that was one of the ones that you did with the horses in the horse series yes. that you were mentioning. So to yeah, that, that point, this is 
my British period when I was putting paintings in the uh, British sales rooms. And uh, I also put uh, sporting paintings in New York uh, sales rooms also. But yes, uh, and I, I meant that sincerely. As a matter of fact, I saw uh, a while back a herring that I painted maybe, oh, way back in the 90s. And I painted it, uh, and it was a very fine example, but I brought it to an auction house and they just thought, well, it's in the school of herring, you know, maybe a follower or something like that. But it was a very good painting and I, I, I put it in the sale and I, I forget what I got for it. But anyway, recently I saw that painting uh, turn up in, in a salesman, I won't mention the auction house, but it was in London. And uh, it was, it had since been authenticated by the world's expert in herring. He named who the uh, uh, jockey was on the horse, the name of the horse, and the year it was painted. And it was a complete invention that I, I created. So I was greatly flattered. And it was a great satisfaction for me and a validation that my thinking and my artistic uh, uh, creation of this uh, particular subject was historically correct in every way. And in your book, you detailed a situation where it was a really close call with an auction house. Can you share that story? Uh, okay, yeah. That. Oh, okay. That was, I think, with the Martin Johnson Heed. Uh, the Martin Johnson Heed that was uh, otherwise known as <laughs> Fat Boy. <laughs> well, yeah, that was a, um, right. Uh, oh, well, yeah, that, there, there's a lot to that story, but to make a long story short, uh, I, create, I was um, very much interested in the work of Martin Johnson Heed. He was one of the most important 19th century American painters of the period. He was uh, part of what you would call the Illuminist School and the Hudson River School. Uh, and he's a very important painter. Uh, there are examples of his work in the Metropolitan Museum and so on. I had uh, met uh, one of the great collectors in America, a guy by the name of Jimmy Rico. I was introduced to him um, through... Um, well, actually, through the... Uh, you were in law, you were a law student, you, you, I'm sure you heard of the, the lawyer Roy Cohn. And uh, I uh, was good friends with Roy, I lived next door to Roy, and uh, through a friend of Roy's I was introduced to um, an art collector by the name of Jimmy Rico, very important collector. Uh, works of his are in museums today. There's a book of, uh, out about him. Uh, most of his uh, works are housed in the Chrysler Museum today. They built a whole uh, wing for his collection. It was very important. Eccentric. Eccentric. Mm. Uh, he lived in a mansion just north of New York City, filled with millions and millions of dollars worth of, uh, of artworks. 19th century American paintings uh, was his, his specialty. He had seen some of my fakes through a friend of Roy's, and he wanted to know who painted them, and he wanted to meet the person. I was eventually brought, it's a long story, but I'm making it short. Uh, I was eventually brought to the house, and I, I met Jimmy Rico himself. And Jimmy, uh, he detested art dealers. He thought that they were nothing but like 
on the level of used car salesmen. He was a great purist and um, <laughs> he, he, he wanted to train me to use my abilities to create 19th century American paintings, the artists that he loved, like Martin Johnson Heat and James E. Buddesworth and J.F. Pito, whole range of artists. He wanted to steer my talents into that direction, and he hoped that I would have great success selling these fakes to all the dealers he detested on Madison Avenue. And I did that, and that was when my career went into high gear. So as the years went on, I painted um, uh, many, many American painters. That became one of my specialties that I wrote about. And they all presented their own challenges, what they were painted on. Some were painted on panels, some were on canvas, some were on things called academy boards. I had to scope out all these technical um, uh, peculiarities that were characteristic to each artist and incorporate that in each one of my fakes. So that's why I, I said, and at Jimmy's house, I had free access to specimens of all of these paintings. I could photograph the signatures. I could photograph front and back, whatever kind of supports they were painted on, the way they were framed originally. So he had everything there at my disposal so that I could, in a sense, back-engineer these paintings to perfection. So um, this, was, this put me on the road to great riches in my career and great success. So it all culminated in the creation of one great masterpiece. Uh, it was a Martin Johnson Heed. And uh, Heed, in the 19th century, he specialized uh, a series of paintings of his, that he was most noted for was um, exotic flowers, various forms of orchids and hummingbirds together in a painting. They're very valuable, very treasured and sought after by collectors. And the rarest of this series was the, his passion flower series, where he painted passion flowers with little hummingbirds around on. And he did these from life down in, he traveled all the way down to Brazil in the 19th century. This guy lived in, before the Civil War, he did this. Uh, and he had shows of these paintings down on like 10th Street in Greenwich Village in those days, and to great success. So anyway, I trained myself to paint Martin Johnson Heed to perfection. You couldn't tell my paintings from the original. They were authenticated by the world's expert that wrote the book on Martin Johnson, he, Theodore Stebbins. He included them in his book. Um, so I, uh, <laughs> I painted this. Uh, <laughs> sorry. I, I, I. I, I, and I made new creations, okay? I, 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 these were original creations that I made up because I was able to think like him and put myself in his skin, in a sense, and see through his eyes because I knew him so well. And, uh, and, 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 and Herring, too, I'm sure they would be proud. Any one of these artists would be proud to put their signature uh, on any one of my creations. And, and I mean that 
sincerely because because I created paintings that were as good as their best efforts, and they would be proud of me if they were alive today. They would be proud of me. And so Jimmy was too. Jimmy, Jimmy thought that I was the living embodiment of the artist that he so revered. And he wanted me to be the legacy uh, that he wanted to leave to the art world one day that I would carry on the work of these great artists when they couldn't do it themselves. So I could carry it on, only me. I was the only one that could do this to paint James E. Buttersworth, one of the most difficult painters, that, uh, one of the great marine painters of uh, American 19th century. Uh, only I could paint Martin Johnson Heads to perfection. And I did it. The great experts in the world uh, authenticated my pictures. As a matter of fact, there was an article in a, a magazine about where to invest your money. And, and this was in a big art periodical. And they said that one of the best places to put your money is in 19th century American paint, paintings. And one of the best artists to invest in is James E. Buttersworth. And then as an example of Buttersworth, to show as an example in this important article, they had one of my creations here. And I took that as a great compliment. I took that as a great compliment that, that, that this, this expert that wrote this article would choose one of my paintings uh, as an example of what you, where you should put your money. But anyway, getting back to the story, I, uh, I painted this uh, magnificent creation. It was a magnificent painting uh, uh, in the style of, of Martin Johnson. He passion flower and hummingbird painting, a, a completely original creation. It was beautiful, beautiful piece of work. And um, I built in every kind of visual forensic that all my powers could think of to put into this painting. And you have to understand, when an expert is examining one of these paintings, they're receiving all kinds of subliminal messages from this painting. All kinds of things are working subconsciously in their mind that's either authenticating the painting in their, their mind or rejecting it. And I was aware of all these things, and I had this all built into the painting. But aside from that, it was a beautiful work, aesthetically and artistically. It was impeccable. I mean, he would be proud of it. And But I went a little too far in the aging of this painting. I went overboard, but I, I was proud of the, the job that I, I had everything built into it, the cracks, the, the, the antique varnish I had on it, the, the way it would reflect on the ultraviolet light and subject itself to test. But uh, it, when I brought it to Sotheby's, they were so excited about the painting that um, they wanted to clean the painting before they put it in the sale. And I was, I couldn't have it cleaned because... <laughs> If it was professionally cleaned, it would have disintegrated. <laughs> See, so, because the painting wasn't the paint wasn't old enough, <laughs> so I was in a dilemma, and I had to talk them out of cleaning the painting. And you have to read the book to to hear the whole story. But 
Anyway, it was a very close call. And in the end, I got out of that one and the painting got sold. And it was authenticated by Theodore Stebbins, the world's expert. And he wrote a paper about it. And it was purchased by the world's biggest collector of Martin Johnson Heed paintings, Richard Manoogian, who was one of the biggest collectors of American paintings uh, in the country. And he prides himself on his his collection of Martin Johnson Heeds. And this was going to be like one of the crown jewel pieces of his collection. And it was recommended by the heads of Sotheby's, the heads of the department, that he must have this for his collection. And it was authenticated by Theodore Stebbins, the world's expert. So he bought it. Bought it. I was happy. You know, everybody was happy. But then within a year, it was discovered that the painting was a fake. I mean, they, they tried to clean it and it fell apart. Mm. But, but, you know, what are you going to do? Those things happen. How much did that painting sell for? 700000 $700, a little over 700000 1700 yeah, something like that, 717000 We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Going back to the fact that you were initially educated by this instruction manual, if you will, from the 40s, and then in your book, Caveat mTOR, you detail painstakingly and fascinatingly the techniques that you underwent to recreate the age and the era-appropriate visual Forensics that you discussed. Yeah. Can you share a few of those techniques right now? Sure. Uh, I was, uh, I found my career thrilling. I would say that uh, just simply being an artist and painting pictures and selling them, I was beyond that. That would have bored me. I, I, I was like uh, uh, an addicted gambler. I loved the endorphin rush of selling a picture, fooling the experts, and getting the cash. So I had to have that thrill. So that kind of addiction or uh, uh, thrills, that drove me onward to always be inventing some new technique, some new technical uh, flim-flam that I could incorporate into my paintings <laughs> that would further uh, fool the experts and totally blindside them. If it uh, triggers off any kind of suspicion at, at all, that will only snowball and the painting is going to be rejected. I never had that happen to me. It has to be perfect, beyond perfect. So I, I was always... Uh, I would lay awake nights dreaming up new tricks and new type of scientific breakthroughs uh, to make a better and improved product uh, that would uh, 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 be able to sell in the sales room and give pleasure to other people. That's all I wanted to do. I wanted to make people to win. I want to give people the opportunity to enjoy and love art the way I did. Okay, And, and I, I had to expand I had to expand the collections, the existing body of work by Martin Johnson Heed, 
and James E. Buttersworth and, and Herring. Uh, so I had a great deal of responsibility on me. I owed it to these artists to carry on their work, and it had to be perfect in every way. So I was always th thinking of different ways to, uh, uh, to make a better, uh, new and improved product. So one of my great breakthroughs, <laughs> I, think, I think Archimedes would have been proud of this one. <laughs> This is one of those eureka moments, okay? It happened an accident. They, 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 what, what they started doing at that time was they were using ultraviolet light to examine antique paintings. And um, what they do is they take the painting into a darkened room and they shine it from above with an ultraviolet light and it reflects on the surface of the painting. And what the ultraviolet does is it, it tells a story of, of, the, of the painting to the trained expert. Uh, number one, if there's any touching up, later touching up on the original painting, uh, you know, retouching, repairs made, they show up on the ultraviolet. They show dark spots. And that means later paint that was put on the painting to, to make touch-ups. So you can see how much damage was on the painting and where it was retouched. But there's something very important in, uh, in this examination. And that shows the original varnish that the artist put on the painting oxidizes through time. And that oxidation process causes that the surface varnish on that painting to reflect in a certain uh, characteristic uh, fluorescence. It's a greenish fluorescence. Mm. And it'll only happen if the varnish is over 100 years old. It takes that much time to develop that reflection of fluorescence on there. It's oxidation. So this new way of examining paintings was coming into more and more common use in the time when I was coming up, when I was selling and being very active. So one day I was cleaning a real period painting, uh, a 19th century painting. I was cleaning it and I was removing the antique varnish off of the surface of the painting. And I was doing this with a solution of acetone, which is a very powerful solvent that could dissolve the antique varnish that's laying on the surface of a, a period painting. And that the, the, the varnish is removed because it becomes yellow and dark brown, and it has, it's called the cleaning. So I was removing the, uh, the uh, discolored brown varnish from a painting, and I was using an ultraviolet light to make sure that I was taking it all off, that there was no residue on the painting when I was, as I was cleaning it. But then I noticed that in the swabs of cotton that were collecting the antique varnish, the fluorescence was all over the, the, the cotton and it was puddling around on the table. And I was saying, there's my fluorescence varnish right there. So I started wringing out the, the cotton swabs for, with all this antique varnish. I put it through a filter, I added some synthetic varnish to give it some body, and I started spraying it 
<laughs> it's too much. I mean, it was beautiful. <laughs> it was beautiful. This all happened like within within hours. You know, it was one of the most great things. And I started spraying it on my own fakes. And then I ran into a dark room. I turned on an ultraviolet light, and it fluoresced perfectly, perfectly. There's no way to fake this. Uh, I mean, so if an expert takes the painting and puts it in a dark room and puts an ultraviolet light on it and sees the green fluorescence, he'll, he has to come to, to only one conclusion, that varnish has to be 100 years old. Who would be faking paintings of this, this type 100 years ago? Uh, not that the, 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 the painting wasn't impeccable stylistically, but this reinforced that the painting was absolutely period by having that skin of varnish on there that reflected right. And it was one of the great moments that I, uh, that I had in, in uh, my career. It was, you know, it was a great, great technical breakthrough. And I, I was very proud to incorporate that. That became standard operational procedure in, uh, in, in my subsequent uh, body of work. And so tell us about the first moment the beginning of the end, when you were contacted by the feds. Yeah, well, I was, I was, um, I was uh, had paintings in the sales rooms. Right there. I was riding high. It was really great. Uh, everything was going uh, good in my life. I uh, I was uh, I was rich. I spent a lot of money on clothes. I liked shopping in London and New York. I would have suits made in Brooks Brothers. That was my favorite place. I loved shopping on German Street in London. Uh, I hung out in, I was never a bar person. I didn't, I've never really liked bars. I was a cafe person. My idea of a good uh, time is sitting at a cafe, reading the Wall Street Journal, checking my investments, having a glass of wine, and, uh, uh, and a, a, a light lunch and watching the world go by. I like to spend a lot of money on clothes. Um, and I loved the Upper East Side in New York where I lived. I loved um, Miami and I loved London. And I just rotated around to these different locations. Uh, and I put paintings in sales rooms and money was always being poured into offshore accounts I would collect it in London. I would go shopping. I would go on vacations over there. I would take girlfriends out. We would go on shopping sprees. Life couldn't have been better. But one, this one girlfriend I had, uh, I didn't know what happened. Something went haywire. <laughs> I, I, I hold no grudge. I don't hate her. Okay. She didn't need money. She had money. She didn't need money. I don't know what she did it for, but she took one of my paintings I gave her as a gift. I can't understand. And, and she, put it in a, she put it in a sales room in London. And she didn't know that I had, I had put a similar painting in, in Sotheby's over there about a year before. An identical one, as a matter of fact. I gave this second one to her as a gift. So when she put the one in the sales room, and she put it, I think, in Bonham's, it, 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 and it got accepted, and it went into the sale, but it rang all kinds of alarm bells because whoever bought it in New York at Sotheby's said, I got the same painting. What's going on here? T 
two can't be exactly the same, even though Buttersworth did make duplicates of his painting. This was too much of a coincidence. So it brought uh, attention. Uh, so my activities came to the attention of the FBI. And uh, one day uh, I was in my place in Florida, my home in Florida, which was my home and studio, and two, two FBI guys showed up, right? And they, uh, they came in, they, they came in, and they, they, the first thing they tell you, you know you're in trouble when they say to you, don't worry now, you're not in any trouble, we just want to ask you any questions, okay? When they say that, okay, <laughs> tell them, I'm, I have nothing to say, I'm calling my lawyer. Okay, don't talk. When they say you're not in trouble, that's mm -hmm. it, okay? Forget about it. So they come in, and luckily, my studio door was closed, which had fakes all over the place. And they came in my living room. And the beginning and the end, to answer your question, they sat down on the sofa. They opened up this black briefcase that like, looks like a lawyer's briefcase, ugly looking thing. And when they opened that up, I knew this is going to be nasty. Okay. And they opened that up. And they start taking auction catalogs out. And I knew this is getting worse by the moment. Okay. <laughs> I start opening up these catalogs and they're showing me pictures of, of, of paintings I did, you know, throughout the years. And they're saying, Mr. Perini, you know, we did some research on some of these paintings. And uh, two of these paintings are like identical. And you were the owner on these paintings. And, you know... Well, you're not nature. We just want to know, do you have receipts for them? <laughs> Where did you get them? Yeah. So I gave him, uh, I gave him some stories. And uh, anyway, that was the beginning of the end. And I'm sure that was, you know, they were filling out what they call a 301. And after they left with a lot of I can't remember, and I'm not sure, and I don't have receipts anymore, and all kinds of stuff like that. A lot of evasions, I guess you would say. I'm sure they went back to their main office and said, there's something wrong here with this guy, you know. And then uh, the next thing I knew, it was, uh, it was in the, uh, the hands of the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, the Southern District of New York, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, they opened up an investigation, and that kept expanding and they kept finding more and more paintings. They had their own collection of paintings at the Southern District. And it was a full-blown investigation that went on for five full years. Yeah. And it, was, uh, it wasn't any joy to live through that, but they were uh, contacting people I knew. They were going to auction houses. They were uh, tapping my phones. Uh, it, it, it's an unpleasant uh, uh, situation to be in. Uh, and um, yeah, it went on for five years. You know, it's a hunt and it's a wait yeah. when the government is after you. And yeah. it is something that you can palpably feel every day. Oh, I've seen every it many times. So yes. all of a sudden, you the yeah. you weigh a lot more than you used to. And you realize you carry that weight through that entire time and you realize the slow glacial pace of the federal government, which is what your tax dollars pay for, uh, it it really spreads out like the thickest peanut butter you've ever encountered. Their attempt at ensuring they've collected every piece of information regarding to your case. I know exactly what you're talking about. You, you describe it 
perfectly. It's like a slow water torture. <laughs> uh, they, it just comes in a little at a time. I don't know how many times I got a call from my lawyers. I would hit the answering machine in those days, and it was my lawyer's office. They have to see me down there because they heard from New York, and what it would be is more questions from New York. And New York, that was the FBI's office. They knew the answers to these questions, of course, but they wanted my denials or my lies or whatever it was. I was and this went on for years, but you got it right. It's a, it's a slow process. It grinds you up. It's on your mind 24 hours a day from the time you go to sleep at night to the time you wake up in the morning. You're wondering, what are you going to find out today? You know they're tapping the phones. You could hear the clickings on the phones and all these other hollow sounds on there. And then you find out that they visited somebody you know because a person won't talk to you for, for some reason. Or you get these strange telephone calls. These were beautiful. But, I mean, you have to be pretty dumb to fall for this, or, or maybe you never saw a, a, a movie of, in your life about how this works, but you get a call from somebody uh, from the past that you did business with, and they start reminding you. They call you up, and they want to have a friendly talk. Hey, we, we haven't touched it. Let's catch up sometime. Hey, remember the time that painting we sold? You remember that one that was a... And then you realize, aha, uh -huh, this is it. They're trying to incriminate me and make me make an admission that I sold a certain painting. And I would say things like, what? I don't remember. What are you talking about? Well, I never sold that. I, I don't know, you know. So I was wise to all that. But, you know, you have to be on your toes with them. And, um, uh, you know, you just, uh, you, you got to be, after a while, I said in my book, you do get conditioned to it to a certain degree. Mm. But uh, there's nothing like it when it's finally over. I mean, then. You feel like you have a new lease on life, but uh, uh, boy, those people could really make your life miserable. No question about because they, they have all the resources in the world. It, it was tough, you know. They had my they had my offshore accounts. They had all kinds of records, wire transfers, uh, money being withdrawn from bank accounts. You know, that's wire fraud, money laundering, apart from. You know the the sales of the paintings themselves; they had it all, and uh, so you know, yeah, that went on for five years, and it just one day just went away. And those each count, by the way, each count that you just mentioned—that's twenty-five years to life, uh, because this is federal, and those yep. the 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 proportion of the sentencing to each of those kinds of counts is. It's really mind-blowing, frankly, and that is why there's such an incredible leveraging tool when those are on the table with a discussion or conversation yeah. with the federal government, the criminal division in that way, because simply by virtue of using an email, all of a sudden, that's an additional enhancement, an additional charge of 25 right. to life. That's so tell it. us about then, you said in one day, it all went away. Tell us about that. Well... Yeah, uh, what what happened? Uh, what was happening at that time was that this the investigation. Even well, my lawyers who understood federal white collar crimes, it should have been something that could have been wrapped up in six months for sure. And after a year that went by, and they were still asking questions, and it was still dragging on, was making everybody's eyebrows 
raise like, what's going on here? What are they waiting for? They have the bank accounts. They have that girl as a witness. They have everything. They have examples of my paintings. As a matter of fact, they had so many paintings in their gallery. I, I joke they could have opened up a gallery of their own up in New York at the Southern District. But anyway, uh, it was dragging on for an inordinate amount of time. And my lawyers and myself, we were speculating what is going on here. And we were all, uh, I and my lawyers were uh, prepared for an indictment and how that would happen. And I I probably uh, have to appear in New York City uh, and uh, be escorted maybe by federal marshals, you know, the whole the whole routine of how that works, the whole procedure. And I was planning on that. And it was uh, it was uh, it was difficult. But anyway, at that time, while I was under investigation and this was another great stroke of luck in my life. Alfred Taubman, the CEO of Sotheby's, also came under investigation, federal investigation. He was price-rigging commissions, sales commissions, with his counterpart at Christie's Auction House, and that was a major crime. Uh, I believe it's a, yeah, it's a federal crime. Uh, it's a violation of trade laws. Uh, you are conspiring with your competition to rig prices. Uh, so it's an antitrust, I think, law. You know, it, it's a serious, I mean, people go to prison for that. So he's a big time operator, Taubman. Okay. He was a, he's a, he was a, a, one of the early billionaires in our country. He was a, he was a, uh, a very influential man in New York City. He was, he was what we would call the donor class politically, highly connected man. And he bought Sotheby's uh, privately as a plaything. He wanted it as something to, he wanted to get into art. He, he made his billions uh, as a, uh, a, mall, a shopping mall developer. And he's a very interesting man, very personable, very nice. And um, so he bought Sotheby's. But he came under investigation as I was under investigation. Now, what happened or what we believe happened here was by him uh, being under investigation for this very serious uh, crime and he got a team of top gun lawyers, some of the best uh, white collar crime lawyers in the country. He got a team of them for uh, to defend him in this case. Now, his case uh, got was out of the envelope early on because it involved a lot of people. His his uh, uh, his vice president D.D. D. Myers was involved in it. Uh, Christie, so it was out of the the bag. It was out of the bag really early on. There was no way to suppress it or uh, do anything about it, fix the case or anything. Uh, he had to work this out on his own. Now I'm sure while he was in the middle of all this himself. Well, we know it wasn't for sure. Absolutely. He found out. uh, I'm sure that his lawyers came to him and said, Mr. Taubman, we got another problem here. Uh, There's a guy by the name of Ken Perrini, and uh, 
he's under investigation. We were visited by the FBI, and they want to. I'm, 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 I'm uh, speculating now, but this is what must have happened. And uh, and he's been selling fakes here. And we looked at our records, and they go back quite a ways. And they're going to indict this guy. I'm sure they, had, you know, had to tell bring this out to Tobin. He's a CEO. And um, now, I did not know what was going on, but I did know one thing: that Tobin, when I was when I was in the middle of my investigation, coming to the maybe the last third of it, I knew that Tobin was in trouble. And then it got all over the news in the last uh, maybe year, maybe the year of my investigation. I'm not sure. I have to look at the right, but it was getting to the latter part of the five-year statute, put it that way, where Tobin was convicted and he went to jail for only a year and a half in federal lockup. So he went to a very, you know, a very easy uh, lockup in Maryland where all the, uh, uh, the royalty of crime go or something like that. We uh, call it and, Club Fed. Yeah, that's it, Club Fed, right. So he, w- he was there with, uh, in good company. So anyway, I remember telling my lawyers one day in another meeting we had, because we were constantly getting communiques from the FBI office in Queens that they had more questions for me to answer and more invitations for me to come up to New York and, in their words, to come and save myself. They were asking me to do things. It it was very, very suspicious and strange because they were asking me to do things that they knew my lawyers would never let me do. So why are you asking me to do that? This was all a charade is what it was. Now, unfortunately, Roy Cohn was already dead because if Roy was alive, I would have went right to Roy with this whole problem. He would have smoked this whole thing out in a minute. Okay, but anyway, I didn't have Roy uh, and uh, and Roy as an insider. And he would have he would have seen, hey, you got Sotheby's compromised here. This is going to be a political decision going on here. He would have gotten behind the scenes and you know what he would have done? (laughs) <laughs> I'm only I'm only imagining this. I'm sure Sotheby's would have went. I mean, I'm sure Roy would have went to Sotheby's and said, you know, that guy Ken Frayne's on it. He feels really bad about what he does. He wants to go public and make a confession because it's con- <laughs> 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 We would have walked away with a settlement at it all. <laughs> And a non-disclosure contract, you know. <laughs> if Roy was in charge, we would have made millions out of it, you know. But anyway, so what happened was I said to my lawyers one day, I said, you know, it's all over the newspaper that uh, Tobman got convicted and he got a year and a half. My lawyers said to me, they said, hey, that's good for you. Because if he if he only got a year and a half for bilking the public out of hundreds of millions of dollars in commissions, uh, what what could they possibly do to you? Uh, that's called cash register justice if they give you 10 years or 15 years. So uh, they thought, that's good. That's good news. Look upon it as good news. But I didn't realize it was much more than good news. It was what saved me, really. Because when going back, actually the thing that saved me from indictment, I believe, in my opinion, what saved me from indictment, it was very clear to me, was the sale of Fat Boy. And they found out that was a fake. And I know that for a fact. 
And when they found out that was a fake, they didn't call the FBI, call the police and have me arrested and look back in their records and see how many other paintings I sold to them. No, they covered it up. And they, they covered up the sale and they got a rumor out on the street. that Remember that Martin Johnson he that saw it disintegrated in restoration and it was gone, destroyed. So that that was it. That was the that was the end of Fat Boy, and they didn't make any beef out of it, and they never came to me for any money, uh, a refund or anything. Like, but they knew it was a fake. And then what happened was, a year or two years later, I, I, I'm not sure of the time frame on this, but then I came under an investigation, and Sotheby's they must have again. I'm speculating here, but Sotheby's must have said, "Oh my God." Remember that painting that he sold here a year and a half, two years ago, that Martin Johnson heed, and we covered that, and we didn't do anything about it? If he gets indicted, that's all going to come out. What are we going to do? How are we going to explain this? When we knew he was a forger, the guy, and we had records, what, how are we going to get out of this? So, Todman, I'm sure, and, and, and now... Why am I sure? In my book, I speculate, and I'm not far off the mark from here, I speculate that I was not indicted because Sotheby's simply refused to cooperate in an investigation or, or prosecution of me. And I'm not too far off the mark there, and that's, what I, that's all I knew at the time I wrote my book. But since my book came out, for whatever reason, and there's a, a lot of people that dislike Sotheby's, insiders and people in the business that dislike Sotheby's with a passion, for whatever reasons. They've written books about it, like The Art of the Steel, if you want to read about some of the nefarious dealings that Sotheby's has been involved in in the past. I had someone call me up that said, I read your book, I loved it, etc., etc., and he said, I want to tell you what the rumor is out on the street about what really happened with that whole case. And I was told that Alfred Taubman, my case was not public. Nobody ever heard about it. He, he called in a political favor with a senator that he had in his hip pocket. And he called in a favor to have this investigation shut down, and that's what the word is on the street. And it was designed to just go away. The, uh, the statute expired, and never another word about that. And that's what I was told. And to me, it makes perfect sense, because how does an investigation with all that Evidence that incriminating evidence that they had. Nobody gets out of those situations. Nobody does. People pray for a miracle. I've heard of people. I've read books wishing it would go away. People get suicidal about being in a situation, but it doesn't go away. Like you say, those wheels grind slowly. Nothing in this world could stop them. But it went away. Because if I had been indicted, there was no telling what would have come out between my relationship with Sotheby's because Sotheby's knew what I was doing in the last years. 
and they didn't do anything to stop me. I was still putting paintings in their sales rooms in London. And if I had been indicted, it would have come out that I was operating in London and New York simultaneously and for years. That would have been a very difficult situation for them to deal with on the heels of their CEO going to the big house. <laughs> they would have needed this like a hole in the head. And don't forget, they're a publicly traded company. Taubman brought them, made them into a, uh, a public corporation. He did a lot for them. Who knows what it would have done to their stock. And so there was a lot at, at stake here. And as I was told by one lawyer, there could have been criminal culpability on the part of Sotheby's uh, officials themselves in this situation. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer, but I was told that that was a possibility. So all in all, uh, it was uh, in the hands of the Southern District. The investigation went on for five, five long years, all documented. They had enough of my paintings to open up a gallery themselves. I hope they did afterwards. They had to make some something back on their investig on their investigation because those things don't cost. Uh, you know, they they're not for free, and uh, maybe they recouped something. And uh, and uh, I uh, you know I wish them well. Anyway, it's over now, and uh, it's a part of my past. And, uh, and that was the history of my life. But I had many great years in art, and I still love art, and I'm still painting what I consider the most deceptive fakes in the world today. Uh, and I sell them to what I would call the 1% in, 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 in the country, people that love my work, love great fakes, and they certainly have the money that they could afford the originals they certainly have that. But for one reason or another, they like what I have to put in their various homes in Palm Beach or London or L.A. or whatever. And um, they find, I think some find a certain fascination in fakes. But uh, who knows where, those, where these paintings will be in 25 or 30 years from now after, you know, they pass through different hands. <laughs> And the title of your book, Caveat Emptor, represents the risk on the buyer. The title is the Latin phrase for buyer beware. It goes way back in history. I think even back to the Roman times they use it because in the Romans had auctions uh, in ancient Rome of all kinds of things. They even had antiquities in ancient Rome, <laughs> Greek antiquities and, and so on. And, you know, Michelangelo, when he was young, he sold a fake uh, uh, he he made a small, uh, I think it was a, 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 a stone uh, cupid, and he aged it, and he and he and he, uh, the marble, and he sold it to a cardinal, and he got some money to keep him going, and he was one of the uh, history's first forgers. But anyway, the phrase means buyer beware, and it's a very, uh, I think, a very appropriate uh, title for my book because I I often look upon investing in art. This way, uh, I liken it to investing in diamonds. Now, if diamonds are a great investment and they could give a huge return on your money if you know what you're doing, but they, it's they are also 
extremely dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. If you are not an expert in diamonds, and if you're not a world-class expert, as good as the people that are selling those diamonds on the auction market or wherever, if you're not as good as them, don't mess around in the marketplace because you're going to get taken. Now, the same thing is true in artworks. If you love art, loving art is not enough. Investing in art is a whole different ballgame. And if you don't know what you're doing, you better either save your money, invest in something else, buy a print, buy a fake, but be very careful about buying paintings in auction houses. Because when you read the disclaimers in the back of the auction catalog, and as I say in caveat emptor, if you could find a magnifying glass powerful enough to read the disclaimers that they print in the back of the catalog, you can't say it's not there. But if you can find a magnifying glass of that strength. You will see that there's every kind of excuse in the world is built in to their disclaimers in legal jargon that the average person may not quite understand that tells you in so many words that anything you buy in those sales rooms <laughs> might be real and it might not but they ain't guaranteeing nothing in that place i mean, forget about it. they can't. <laughs> you're on your own okay you're on your own so the thing is uh, and and you know i i i i know this from experience because through the years i i've uh, made personal friends with some very important people in the art world and collectors and so on and I'm not going to mention his name, but one of the most important experts in the country has turned to me for my expertise in his area of specialty. He And we've become good friends. He's recently passed away. He was a great guy. I, I talk about him in my book, but he's a good sport. He loved my book. He was an old friend of Jimmy Rico, and we became great friends in his last years. And we, he, we exchanged all kinds of stories about the art world and everything. He was a great guy. But uh, uh, I have, I have uh, been called upon to eyeball paintings for my own expertise. And I have known people that have had a lot of money and think that they're experts and go to sales rooms and buy paintings that are abominations. And it's not that they're fakes. They could be original paintings, but they are heavily restored. They are very poor aesthetically. Even great artists don't have good days. They are paintings that you could identify as hanging around and bouncing around from dealer to dealer. They never find a permanent home. Okay. And they're that the dealers put these in the sales rooms and bid on them themselves often. And I had a friend of mine that bought a painting like that once and proudly showed it to me. I told him it was a piece of garbage and he found out how true. And he spent tens and tens of thousands of dollars on this piece of junk. And I told him what it was. I told him it had all been skinned out. The whole thing was repainted. You couldn't get a third of this back. And he found out that, it, that I was so right about that. So 
The thing is, if you're not an expert yourself, you better be very good. Now, look, if you really know what you're doing, and again, buyer beware, you could go to the sales rooms. And if you know where to place your money in the right time, in the right place, you could make a good buy on a good quality painting. And you know what? In a few years, you could double your money. But it's no different than the stock market. You could buy a stock, have it for five years, and get a quarter of your money back, right? Uh, and the same thing in the sales rooms. Paintings go in fashion, they go out of fashion. Right now, the paintings that I was making all, uh, my money with a 19th century American painting, they're not in fashion so much. They haven't really cratered in value, but they're not accelerating, like doubling in value every couple of years anymore. Those days are over, but they're holding their value. So you have to just be very, very careful. It's just, it could even be more treacherous than investing in the stock market. So that's where I get the title from. And also, there's also the possibility that there's always going to be fakes out there. There's always going to be fakes out there. And you have to be able to prove to Sotheby's or, or Christie's, I shouldn't just pick on them, Sotheby's, Christie's, Bonhams, Phillips, anybody, that the picture is scientifically designated as a fake. And then you could bring it back to them and get a full refund. So they say in their microscopic terms of business published on the back of every catalog. The brilliant, colorful Ken Perenni. Your book remains one of my favorites to this day. And you. you have met and exceeded all of my expectations for this conversation, which now this conversation is one of my favorites to this day. You are infinitely entertaining and fascinating. And um, <laughs> I think no one can help but root for you from start to finish. So I'm so glad that that you're a free man and always have been because I just... Um, you are delightful in so many ways. And I encourage everyone uh, to read this delightful book, Caveat Tour: The Secret Life of an American Art Forger, because there's really amazing details in there. And um, I wish you the best. And before we close, do you have any final thoughts, any final message that you would like to share with our undoubtedly wrapped listeners right now? Well, uh, thank you. And thank you for those kind words. I really appreciate it. And they mean a lot to me. And uh, uh, I would say that uh, to any aspiring art forgers, I would say, don't do it. It's very dangerous. I was lucky. But if you must, make sure you do business with nothing but the best, Sotheby's, Christie's. And if anything goes haywire, you'll be in fine shape. <laughs> Don't do it, guys. Don't break the law. We're not advocating for that. I got to throw that in, Ken. I have to be boring for a second. Uh, you are wonderful. Thank you so much. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 